Prenatal screening tests have offered substantial benefits for pregnant patients, but they've also created ethical challenges. As early and non-invasive fetal genetic sequencing becomes widely available, ensuring that women can give fully informed consent for prenatal testing will become more complex. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Josephine Johnston, Director of Research at the Hastings Center. Ms. Johnston has co-authored a perspective article about prenatal testing and the problems with routinized screening practices. Ms. Johnston, you write in your article that fetal genetic sequencing is expected to become widely available in the near future. What traits or conditions can sequencing currently detect beyond what's identified by other prenatal screening tests? There are two types of difference that we would see with if this fetal sequencing became available as a non-invasive test. One of the differences is to do with the range of genetic traits that could be detected. So the screening tests that we see today generally are looking for chromosomal abnormalities, so an extra chromosomes or missing chromosomes, and some other subchromosomal disorders. And the sequencing could look all the way down to the level of small gene variant changes. So things that you would normally not be able to detect unless you did an invasive test like an amnio or a CVS could be detected with these non-invasive methods if we could do whole, uh, fetal sequencing or whole cell fetal sequencing. And so things like single gene disorders like Huntington's disease or the identification of the gene variants associated with increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer are the examples of the kinds of conditions that currently were not picked up on most prenatal screening tests but could be picked up by sequencing if sequencing could be done non-invasively on uh, fetal cells. So you're right that one concern related to this possible increased availability of prenatal sequencing is that such screening would become routine in ways that would undermine informed consent, as has happened with tests for Down syndrome already. How can we ensure that prenatal testing is widely available, easy to obtain, but it's not assumed to be the norm? Yeah, that's, I think, the big challenge. So routinization by itself is not a bad thing. There are lots of good tests that should be available on a more routine basis. The trick is to make something widely available, but also to really inform people in advance about what the test can and can't do and what the kinds of conditions or traits are that can and can't be identified by the test so that people can make an informed choice about whether to have it, have the test. And the trick there, of course, is that that kind of process takes time and effort. And almost by nature, something that's routinized is usually done with very little discussion. So the big challenge is how do you make something widely available, how do you routinize it, but not undermine the informed consent process that should go on in advance of it? And how then, after testing, do you provide the kind of detailed follow-up that some patients are going to require if they have results that are complex or need a lot of interpretations? So routine procedures are usually done quickly um, without a lot of discussion in advance and maybe not with a lot of discussion once the results come in. How do we make sure that prenatal testing can be widely available without skipping over these informed consent processes? You talk in your article about the fact that the threat of litigation has also fueled the kinds of routinized practices that push patients toward testing. Are there specific examples of legal cases that have had long-lasting effects on care? That's a hard question. One of the reasons it's a difficult question to answer is that it's actually difficult to know without doing big surveys what exactly is on the minds of physicians. And my understanding of the literature on this is that there is a little bit of 
not misinformation, but maybe over-interpretation of some legal cases. So there have been some cases brought against physicians for not returning results or for not recommending screening. And then they almost take on a larger-than-life role in the minds of physicians. It can even be that they're over-interpreted how much they really should be shaping practice. You write that clinicians have an ethical responsibility to discuss the small but real possibility that information from testing is going to lead women to face decisions about whether to end or continue their pregnancy. Why do you think clinicians don't always initiate these conversations? Do they assume that women understand the downstream implications of the screening, or are they avoiding a potentially uncomfortable topic? So my understanding is that it's a bit of both. It's not always the case that a woman will face a termination decision. Most people get reassuring results from prenatal screening. Certainly when the screening is looking only for a few conditions that are not particularly common, most women will be reassured and get a result that is called a negative result, but is essentially what people are wanting to hear, that everything looks okay. But uh, some won't, and so on the one hand, it's not a guarantee that you will have to have that conversation with a patient afterwards. So I think sometimes physicians are thinking, well, it might not happen. It's most likely they won't get a bad result or a difficult result. It's also not a pleasant topic to have to discuss in advance. So there is quite a lot body of research showing that physicians and patients essentially avoid discussing the fact that tests can lead to a termination decision. That's not to say that all patients would terminate even if they knew that there was a genetic disorder present in the fetus at all, but certainly people avoid the conversation unless and until it's actually required, and then some patients feel blindsided by that. So it could also be that the physician is assuming that the patient understands a little bit more about the test than they really do. You spoke earlier about the importance of conversations between the physician and the patient to obtain adequate informed consent. How much of making that happen is going to depend on changing reimbursement policies, changing practice guidelines to make that something that physicians can do? And how much can be accomplished by improving tests so they have more adequate, less ambiguous results? Oh, it definitely is all of those things. I also just want to point out that it's not just physicians who have these conversations with patients. It's a lot of primary care, prenatal care providers. It's a range of nurses and midwives as well. But certainly all of those different providers lack the reimbursed time to have the kinds of conversations that we're recommending. It's also the case, though, that there could be a different way of achieving some of these goals that we have outlined in the paper, like having better information available for patients in advance. They don't necessarily have to have a one-on-one conversation with a provider. They could be reading or interacting with um, an online program that guides them through what the test can do and what it can't do. So there are a number of different sort of educational approaches that could be used with patients that mean that when the patient does have a one-on-one encounter with a provider, they already have quite a lot more information at their fingertips than they do today. So there are other kinds of education interventions that could be used. In terms of the test being better, it's important to think what that means. The test could be and probably will become more accurate and that means that there should be less uncertainty or ambiguity in some of the results. But the other thing that really needs to catch up is the state of our understanding of what genetic results mean. So it's all very well to be able to accurately identify different gene variants but right now we are really still building knowledge about what those gene variants do and don't mean. 
and the state of genomic knowledge is, I'm not being harsh, I think everybody who works inside of those fields understands and agrees that this is a work in progress, interpreting gene variants. Some are well known and really it's clear what they mean, but others, we are really still in the, in the stage of building our knowledge about what they mean. So even if the test is really accurate, if the interpretation is difficult because we just don't know a lot about what certain gene variants mean, we will still have a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity. So finally, given all of that, the current state of the testing, the current state of genetic knowledge, and the current time limits on providers, how can individual physicians and other providers ensure that their pregnant patients are adequately informed about the implications of prenatal testing? So there is now beginning to be some information available for providers to share with patients that does not come from the testing company. So the testing companies have some information. There have been some concerns that that may not be independent information. And so the National Society for Genetic Counselors and some other organizations that are provider-based organizations are starting to prepare information that physicians can share with patients in advance of testing. So that's one thing that can be done that can be helpful for providers. I think the other thing is for providers to be very careful when selecting the tests that they offer to make sure that they are offering tests that they understand and can support patients with interpretation of results. And the testing companies have genetic counsellors on staff who can help with the interpretation of test results and providers can reach out to those counsellors in advance of meeting with patients after the test comes in. They can talk through results that they don't understand. But it's important for providers to recognise their own knowledge gaps and to make sure they're offering tests that they understand and that they have access to resources to help them for those times when they will have a test result that is difficult to interpret or is about a genetic condition that is maybe quite rare that they haven't encountered so they could get some information about it in advance before they meet with the patient to return the results. So just a good amount of self-awareness about what you do and don't know and the tests that you can and can't support. Thank you, Ms. Johnson.